Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here this morning. The signs of restoration are all around us. As you walked in, you didn't walk on carpet in certain areas where hopefully soon there will be carpet. And uh, the restoration that's taking place in here is really just the the tip of the iceberg for this year and the restoration that will go on in here. There'll be new carpet and new paint, also work done on the HVAC. There's going to be a new video room installed soon so that we'll be able to broadcast with more cameras than we're actually able to broadcast in Prior Lake. Not that it's a contest, but that's cool. Uh, And then uh, over the course of the year, you'll see a new sound system come in so that my mic won't cut in and out quite as often, as well as a lot of other things that will be going on and will be exciting um, as we spend time over this year seeing restoration of the building. It is a reminder to us of the work that Jesus is doing in our soul. Uh, He is the one who is the restorer of our souls, that he is making us like Christ, and we're thankful for that. And that's what we desire, and that's what we pray for as we gather around his word today. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the suburbs of Chicago celebrating my daughter's graduation from college. And yeah, yeah, less to pay for. Woo-hoo. Uh, I'm all for that. And then as, as one evening, I decided that we were going to go out to dinner together. And so I went to Google Maps, and I looked for a restaurant in the suburb of Oak Lawn. And I got a list of the restaurants in the suburb of Oak Lawn, and I began to scroll through them, and I picked the one that I wanted to go through. It had a high rating. The pictures of the food looked delicious. That's a dangerous way to pick, I suppose, but I just thought, oh, man, we are going there. And so when I clicked on the location, I realized I, I didn't know exactly where that was. As my kids have gone to school in the suburbs of Chicago, I've become somewhat familiar with the geography and the cross streets, and I couldn't figure out where this restaurant was or how to get there from the hotel. So I zoomed out a little bit. And after zooming out, I still could not tell where this restaurant was or how to get there. So I zoomed out a lot. And it's when I zoomed out a lot that I realized that I was looking at a Google Maps list of restaurants in Oak Lawn, a neighborhood in Dallas, Texas, rather than Oakland, a suburb of Chicago. That would have been a really long way for us to go for dinner that evening. Sometimes it is helpful for us to zoom out and figure out where we are and what is going on. And that's what we're doing in this sermon series. Uh, We are zooming out and looking at an entire book of the Bible in every sermon that is a part of this sermon series. Normally when we come here, we will focus in on a specific passage of the Scripture. We will look at the beauty of that tree, if you will, of that passage of the Scripture. But during this sermon series, we are zooming out and we are looking at the forest, not just the tree. We're looking at an entire book of the Bible, one of the first five books of the Bible, and seeing how it relates to the big narrative of Scripture and how we see Jesus in that book. Today is the third week in our series, so we come to the third book of the Bible, which is... Oh, wow, that that was really lame. I'm not supposed to chide you, but that was really lame, you guys. What is the third book of the Bible? Yes, yes, I'm going to give you some help here. Isn't that handy? Who is pumped to go through Leviticus today? Woohoo! 
Yes, Leviticus. You guys, can we start by acknowledging that Leviticus is a hard book to read? Yeah, amen to that. I've had people who have been going through the book of Leviticus as a part of their Bible reading plans, and when they have arrived there, because of the details about how sacrifices are to be offered, how priests are supposed to cleanse themselves, how many days you're supposed to wait before you wash after you've seen a skin disease, people have said, I'm out. I I don't need to come back to this book again. And maybe you've had that reaction as you've gone through the book. But I think if we can step back and see the big picture of the book of Leviticus, we can see that it is a beautiful part of the Word of God and that it is filled with the gospel. And I'd like us to look at that today. I was going to start by outlining the book of Leviticus for you this morning to give you the big sweeping picture, but to be perfectly frank, the guys at the Bible Project do that so much better than I do. And so we are going to watch the guys at the Bible Project draw the outline of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus. We know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us. So he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals. The second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. 
The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. Here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you've probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're going to ignore you or they're going to turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary. And he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness, 
They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. That you won't get to see for a couple of weeks. So wonderful summary of the outline of the book of Leviticus. But even as we see that, we're left with the question, so, so what do I do with the specific things that I'm reading in Leviticus? There are a lot of rules, a lot of festivals, a lot of ceremonies. As a believer in Jesus Christ, what is my relationship to those things that I read in Leviticus and in the Old Testament law in general? Am I supposed to just ignore everything that's in the Old Testament law? Am I supposed to follow everything that's in the Old Testament law? Am I supposed to just pick and choose the ones that I want from the Old Testament law? What, what do we do with that? Jesus said this about the Old Testament law, Luke 16, 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. How many times have the heavens and the earth passed away during your lifetime? How many times have they ceased to exist in human history? The heavens and the earth are a constant. And Jesus says, just as the heavens and the earth are a constant, so the Old Testament law, down to the smallest possible dot, is a constant. So then the question is, if the law is a constant and still active, why are so many of you directly disobeying it today? Right? Well, why? Leviticus 19.19. 19. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. How many of you are in direct disobedience of this command today? I know I am. Right? Why? Why are you in disobedience? Leviticus 19.27. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. I see a number of you who are being disobedient to that. Ladies, stop trimming your beards. It's clear here. How many of you have eaten sausage or bacon this weekend? Yeah. How many of you did any sort of work or activity yesterday on the Sabbath? Why don't we observe these things if Jesus says, down to the smallest dot, the law perseveres? An even better question is, why, if Jesus says this, are there other places in the New Testament like Galatians 2 and 3, Romans 6 and 7, Colossians chapter 2 that indicate that the rule of law is dead to the believer in Jesus Christ? For example, Galatians 3, 25 through, uh, 23 through 25. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under the law. How does the law persist, as Jesus said, and yet we are no longer under the rule of law? How does that work? How does that function? In order to understand that and to understand how the Old Testament law is to be applied to our lives as believers, we need to understand that there are functions of the Old Testament law that we read in the Old Testament that do not apply to our lives today if we are believers in Jesus Christ. 
and there are functions of the Old Testament law that absolutely apply to our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. Now, you guys, where would we go as new covenant followers of Jesus Christ? Where would we go in order to find out which parts of the Old Testament law apply to us and which parts don't? Right? To the New Testament, of course. Isn't that where we would look for answers to this question? And so I want to start with three things that the New Testament says don't apply to us about the Old Testament law. Starting with this, right? Functions of the Old Testament law that are no longer active in the life of the believer. One, the law divided the nation of Israel from the Gentiles around them. Leviticus 20.23 says, And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. Three verses later, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. One of the reasons for the existence of the Old Testament law was to separate God's Jewish nation out from the pagan Gentile nations around them. They were to be separate in the way they looked, the way they ate, the way they acted. There was to be a clear separation on the outside and the inside of their lives. Laws about diet, earrings, tattoos, haircuts all existed to create a clear distinction between Jew and Gentile. Right? Does this function of the law still apply to us as believers in Jesus? No. We are a not a part of the Old Covenant community living within the boundaries of a theocratic nation with land blessings and cursings. That's not our covenant. In fact, these distinctions between Jew and Gentile that the Old Testament law was meant to create have been done away with so that you can sit here today and you have the blessing of wearing clothes woven of two kinds of material. Hallelujah! When someone commits certain crimes, you don't have to pick up a stone to stone them the way that the Old Testament law commands. Foods are okay for you that the Old Testament says are not okay for those Jewish people in that Old Testament covenant community. And God makes that clear to Peter in Acts chapter 10 as he says, all foods are clean. Jesus has done away with this distinction, and we read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one. Who's the both here? Jews and Gentiles, right? Jesus has made Jews and Gentiles one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Whoops, sorry, friends. There you go. So making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. God has broken down the aspects of the law that were made to separate Jews from Gentiles. We are now one body, and as we saw three weeks ago here, God's great design for his one body is that we would be one in Christ Jesus, one under the cross and one in the gospel in all aspects of our lives. Are, are we supposed to be distinct from the world around us? Absolutely we are. 
But within the new covenant, our distinction from the world around us is based in our Christ-likeness, the fruit that the Spirit produces in us, not in the keeping of the Old Testament law. One aspect that has been done away with is this distinction between Jew and Gentile that the Old Testament law was meant to create. A second aspect of the Old Testament law that is no longer active in our life, the law foreshadowed Christ's coming, the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial system, the Passover. All of these were meant to foreshadow or look forward to what Christ was going to do. Now that He has come, we don't look forward to His saving work. We look back with remembrance to His saving work. Hebrews chapter 7, 27 says, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people, since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. The entire sacrificial system that we see within the book of Leviticus is meant to look forward to Christ as the great high priest. It's meant to look forward to Christ as the Lamb of God. And now that He has come and functioned as the great high priest, He has functioned as the Lamb of God, we no longer look forward to that day. We look back in remembrance to Him. And so that function of the law is no longer active in our lives as believers in Jesus Christ, foreshadowing Christ's coming, we look back. The third aspect of the law that is no longer functioning for the believer in Jesus Christ is this, the law condemns sinners. The law condemns sinners as guilty in God's courtroom. James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor, a transgressor of the law. Jesus says all of the law can be summed up in this. What is this? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of us have failed to live up to loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. And because of that, we are lawbreakers. We are held as guilty by the law of God. But those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, do you still stand under the condemnation of the law? Do you still stand as guilty in God's courtroom? You know the answer to this. Romans 8, 1 through 3 declares, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh." The law was active in condemning us as lawbreakers until we placed our faith in Jesus. And at that point, our sin and our guilt was placed on Jesus on the cross, and we have received His righteousness credited to our account, and we are now declared not guilty in God's courtroom. This function of the law that condemns us as sinners is no longer active for us as believers. Now, friends... 
there is one who wants to whisper condemnation into your life. Right? The Bible says that we have an enemy, an adversary, that the devil whispers condemnation to us about sins that we have confessed and are in the past, about things that we have done wrong and have been forgiven. They're forgiven. They have been cleared by the work of Christ, but yet our enemy wants to bring them to our minds and in front of our eyes and produce shame in us about those things. But for the believer in Jesus, there is no condemnation. There is no shame in those things. We have been forgiven and we are free. So you guys, the, the law is not active for the believer in Jesus in these three areas. It, it no longer acts to distinguish Jew from Gentile. It, it no longer functions as a foreshadower of Christ's saving work. It, it no longer functions in our life to condemn us as guilty. We've been set free from that and there is no condemnation for us. And so since the law is not functioning in those ways in our life, why in the world would I ever turn to the left side of my Bible? Why would I ever read any of these Old Testament books that we're talking about if the law is no longer functioning in our lives as followers of Jesus? The answer to that question is that there are still a couple of ways in which the law is functioning in our lives, absolutely functioning in our lives if we are followers of Jesus. And I want us to look at those two things that are interwoven together, but look at them separately. First of all, for the believer in Jesus, the law is still active in convicting our consciences of sin. One of the purposes of the law is to make us aware of our sin and to help us to recognize our need for a Savior from that sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 shares this idea. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. When I was a kid, my parents taught me that I was to love my neighbor as myself. And that that particularly meant my little sister. Where did my parents get this crazy idea that I was to love my neighbor as myself? It comes from the book of Leviticus, doesn't it? When Jesus pulls it out in the Gospels, he is pulling that from the book of Leviticus. Loving your neighbor as yourself, that is the law. And as a five- and six-year-old, I knew that I was supposed to love my sister, to do what was best for her, to care for her well. And yet so many days, I didn't. Right? There were many days where I grew frustrated with my little sister and did not treat her well. So many days when I acted in selfishness rather than love when it came to my relationship with my sister. Right? Anyone else have a relationship with siblings like that? And because I knew that I was supposed to love my sister, 
the law said so. And that I wasn't, I knew that I was sinful. At age five and six, I understood my sin because every day I knew I should love my sister and so many days I didn't. And it drove me to my need for a Savior. As believers in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to use the law of God to convict us in our sin in order to bring about transformation in our lives. We know we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And yet, so often at the end of the day, we can see ways that we haven't. And so God's Spirit uses the law in order to remind us of God's great grace on our behalf. I failed again today, but this is why Jesus has died. This is the great goodness and grace of my God that has been applied to my life. This is the transformation that's still needed in me and that God's Spirit is bringing about. God's work, God works in us and through us in order to convict us of our sins. Now, you guys, I just said that the enemy condemns us as guilty. And then a moment later, I said the Holy Spirit convicts us for things we have done wrong. How can I tell the difference between those two things? Because when I do things wrong, the enemy's condemnation and the Holy Spirit's conviction both feel like me just feeling guilty for something I've done wrong. So how do I know the distinction between the enemy's condemnation and the Holy Spirit's conviction? I think the answer to that question is whether or not I've dealt with my sin. If I have dealt with my sin, it is over. It has been forgiven. Restoration of relationship with the Father has taken place, and any bringing of that sin before my eyes and before my mind is of the enemy. He wants me to live in shame because of those things that have been forgiven and have been taken care of. But... If I have not yet taken care of that sin, if I'm still living in it and in the repercussions of that sin, and I've not confessed it, I have not repented of that sin, that is the Holy Spirit's conviction coming into my life, saying, hey, you, you need to turn from this. You need to get back onto the path that God would have you walk. The Holy Spirit has no desire to ever bring up a sin that has been forgiven of God and taken care of in confession. Only the enemy will bring that up to you in order to shame you. The enemy has no desire to ever convict you about any sin that you're currently living in. He just wants you to go on living in it. He doesn't want you to feel any conviction. And so we can tell the difference between the enemy's condemnation and the Spirit's conviction in our lives based on whether or not we have dealt with that sin in us. The Holy Spirit actively uses the law of God in order to convict our hearts and minds about our sin. That is one active way that the law is working in us. It convicts our conscience of sin. The other way, the final way, that the law of God is still active in the life of the believer, that it is functioning in your life, is that the law teaches us about God and people. That is the fundamental meaning of the word Torah, that's often applied to those first five books of the Bible. It means teacher. And the law is still an active teacher for us 
as believers in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. And those outpourings, outpourings of teaching like reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What Scripture is Paul referring to in this verse? All Scripture. Isn't that what he says? Does that include the Old Testament? As a matter of fact, since chunks of the New Testament hadn't been written at this point, the Old Testament be, might be what was primarily in his mind when he says all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for our teaching. So if the Old Testament law is my teacher, does that mean that I am supposed to keep each and every one of these rules and ceremonies and festivals that I read about in the Old Testament law? If it is my teacher, am I supposed to be doing all of these rules that I read about in Leviticus and other places? What do you think? Should we be following each of those rules? My, my answer to that question for you is yes. You should be following every rule, every festival, and every ceremony in the Old Testament if you are under the Old Covenant. If you are a part of a theocratic nation dwelling within a particular promised land in the Middle East, set aside by land blessings and cursings, then by all means, live into the rules given to us within the Old Covenant. But that's not who you are. You have been saved through a new covenant, haven't you? And so the rules of the Old Testament do not apply to your life. Whoa. I'm sorry, what? How in the world is the law my teacher if the rules of the law do not apply in my life? What? Galatians 2 and 3, Romans 6 and 7. Galatians 2.19 specifically says, the rule of the law is dead to us as believers. So then how does it function as our teacher? The answer to that is the principles behind the rules given to Israel function very much as our teacher about who God is, who we are, and how we are to relate to Him. We're to learn from those principles that are behind the laws that God gave us. Every time there are rules in the Bible, we interact with those rules on three levels. I've put that in a diagram here. At the core is God's character and relationship with Him. And out of God's character and relationship flow certain principles. And then out of those principles flow certain rules that are spoken into a particular context. You can see an example of how we interact with rules um, in these three ways in my relationship with my kids. When my kids were little, we lived next to a really busy street. And so we had a rule in place. And that rule was, you are not allowed to cross the busy street by yourself. That was a rule. No exceptions to the rule. I didn't want to find out that they had ever crossed that busy street by themselves when they were little micronauts. Now that rule flowed out of a principle. The principle was, I don't want you taking unnecessary risks where you could get hurt or die. And that principle flowed out of my character and relationship. I love you, and I want what is best for you. 
Now, my kids are not this big anymore. They're, they're 22 and 20. Does the rule still apply? Nope. They cross busy streets without me all the time. Right? They, they live in a different state than I do most of the year, and so I don't even know how many busy streets they cross. Can you imagine if we came up to a busy street and I approached my 20-year-old son and I said, you know the rules. you got to hold my hand if we're going to cross this busy street. That would not go over. It might still go over with my 22-year-old daughter, but it would not go over with my 20-year-old son. The rule no longer applies within the current context, but the principle is still very much in place. Then I don't want them taking unnecessary risks where they could get hurt and die. And as college students, I regularly communicate out of that principle to them. And that principle is still driven by my character and the relationship that we have that I love them and and want what is best for them. And that same thing is true of the Old Testament law. The rule does not apply to you within the new covenant, but the principles behind it absolutely do. To use an example uh, from from the Ten Commandments, uh, we are given a rule about Sabbath-keeping. The rule is set aside the last day of the week as as a community for worship and not working. Now, that rule that God gave to his people about keeping a Sabbath flows out of a principle. God wants people to dedicate time to him and be with him. And God wants to spend time with his people. That principle flows out of relationship. God loves his people. And he wants to to spend time with them. He wants what's best for them. And he knows that means rest. And he wants them to dedicate time to him. We see this principle lived out in the New Testament in Luke chapter 10, don't we? When Jesus is at the home of Mary and Martha, and Martha is complaining because Mary is just sitting and spending time with Jesus, what does Jesus say? Mary is doing the one thing that really matters. She's spending time with me. Right? This this principle is forever, and it flows out of relationship that is forever. But the rule changes depending upon the context. As New Covenant believers, the rule no longer applies to us. Romans 14, 5 and 6 says, One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The rule of the law, the rule of the Old Testament law is done for us. But the principle is still our teacher about who God is, who we are, and how we relate to Him. When we look at the Old Testament law, we are not simply to read through books like Leviticus and ignore them. This doesn't doesn't apply to me. I'm out. Nor are we to read the rules and say, boy, I better do each and every one of these. These festivals, these ceremonies. No. We're to understand the rules do not apply to us. But the principles absolutely teach us about who God is, who we are, and how we are to relate to Him. As I was making my way through the book of Leviticus in order to prepare for this message, there were some big principles that I saw within the teaching there that were so important. They're so important to us as believers in Jesus Christ. I want to end by just going through, bang, 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 a few of these principles 
that we see in the book of Leviticus that are so important to our relationship with God. The first is this, God is holy and he calls us to be holy. Leviticus 11, and be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 19, you shall be holy for I the Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy. Do you get the idea? God's holy, totally pure, totally righteous. And Leviticus teaches us this as people have to go through purification before they can be in his presence. As priests have to go through all of these cleansing exercises in order to be in the presence of God, we come to understand, oh, God is holy. And there cannot be impurity and uncleanliness in his presence. And he desires for his people to be holy. He gives his people the Old Testament law so they will be holy. If the people of Israel had kept Right? This is a big if. If the people of Israel had kept every aspect of the Old Testament law, they would have been a holy people set aside for God's purposes. They would have been pure. They would have been righteous. God desires for His people to be holy as He is holy. And that is true of me today. Even though I don't keep the Old Testament law, that principle that God desires for me to be holy as He is holy still active for me today. And it really brings me to my second principle, and that is, we are not holy. Shocker. Right? We are not holy. If the Jews had lived according to the law, then they would have been holy, but they didn't, and God knew they wouldn't. And so as we read through Leviticus, we read, through, we read about the burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the day of atonement, because God recognized that they were going to sin, that they were going to commit trespasses. And that ultimately, while his desire was that they would be holy as he is holy, that in fact, they were not holy. They were unrighteous and impure. Which brings me to the third big principle from Leviticus. God is good and provides a way of salvation. I'm not holy, but God is good and provides a way of salvation. If you read Leviticus 23 through 25, it is a list of different festivals and ceremonies and celebrations, and they are all about how good God is, how He is our provider, and how He is the ultimate victor. We're reading through those festivals like the Feast of First Fruits and Pentecost and Unleavened Bread and Tabernacles and Trumpets. They're all about the goodness of God and His provision and His ultimate victory. And we see His goodness poured out in salvation in the first ceremony listed in that section, Passover, a time when God saved his people through the blood of a lamb. It is a reminder to us of God's goodness and his way of salvation through the blood of a lamb. That section on ceremonies and festivals ends with the year of Jubilee a year in which all debts are paid, in which every slave is set free. And we cannot read that without getting emotional about Jesus' heart, about God's great heart to set people free from slavery to sin, to set people free from their indebtedness to sin, to pay their debt for them. Our God is good and He provides a way of salvation. And Leviticus even tells us specific things about the way of salvation that He provides. God has provided salvation through substitutionary atonement. I'm glad I only have to say that once. 
The Day of Atonement is at the heart of the book of Leviticus. And what is the Day of Atonement about? It is about two goats. The high priest would come and he sacrificed the one goat on behalf of the people. The penalty for people's sin is death. And rather than the people dying for their sins, this goat died as a substitution for their sins. But then there was another goat, and the priest's hands were placed upon that goat, and the people's sins were ceremonially transferred to that goat, and the goat was led out into the wilderness to never return. And when we put those two goats together, we get a clear picture of the substitutionary atonement that Jesus purchased on our behalf. Jesus is that sacrifice for our sins. And because He is that sacrifice for our sins, our sins have been removed from us out into the wilderness and never returned to us. And so we see God's great goodness on the Day of Atonement, His salvation of people, and we even see foreshadowing of how He will save us. Do we need to participate in the Day of Atonement? No, that's not our covenant. But we should read it and be reminded of the goodness of God as He provides substitute for us. And finally, the big principle from Leviticus that we see that relates to us and our salvation Relationship with God comes through a mediator. There is a chunk of the book of Leviticus that is all about the establishment and function of the priesthood. God made a Levitical priesthood to operate as a go-between between a holy God and unholy people. The priesthood was to represent people to God and represent God to people. No sooner does God establish this Levitical priesthood in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9 than in Leviticus chapter 10, we see the sons of Aaron screwing up the priesthood and being punished for it. And it really was a portent of things to come, where the Levitical priesthood would fail to play the role that God intended for it to play, to be a mediator between God and people. But it also looked forward. And it reminds us as we, rev- as we read Leviticus that where the Levitical priesthood failed, Jesus has succeeded and done so perfectly. Jesus is that great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4 says. 1 Timothy 2.15 teaches us that there is one mediator between God and man. And who is that? That is the man Christ Jesus who is our great mediator. We don't need Levitical priests, but as we read about them, they remind us of the principle of God's loving provision through a great mediator. Leviticus helps us to see the gospel. This is the gospel. 1,500 years before Jesus, the, the author of Leviticus sat down and foreshadowed the entire gospel message for us. And as we read about it, we read about the gospel accomplished incompletely through the book of Leviticus, accomplished perfectly and completely through the person of Jesus Christ. When we read the book of Leviticus, we read it as those who have been set free from the rule of law, but who can bask in the beauty of the principles that we see in this book that teach us about who God is who we are, and how we can relate to Him. 
And as we spend time in Leviticus, we can't help but be reminded of God's salvation that has been poured out to us. That through that substitutionary atonement, we've been declared righteous in the courtroom of God. That through the work of Jesus, He is giving us clean hands and transforming our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that one day, we will live in perfect holiness with Him as a community in heaven. As 1 John 3, 2 says, we will see Him face to face and we will be made like Him. Leviticus reminds us of those glorious truths and we see that beauty within this book. We want to celebrate that beauty as we sing a song called Give Us Clean Hands. Celebrate God's amazing cleansing in our life that has happened, that is happening, and that ultimately will happen as we join with Him in heaven. As we do that, we're going to be taking our offering today. We do so as an expression of our love for God. And so if you want to give uh, as the red buckets go by, we would encourage you to do that. There are some other ways that you can be giving as well. And we'd love for you to put your Connect cards in there as they go by. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good and we're so thankful for this message of Leviticus. A message of your gospel. That you are the great high priest. That you are the sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for that work in our lives, and we celebrate it now by giving to you. We celebrate it now by singing your praises in Jesus' name.